And uh, we want to cover the uh, 23rd and 24th chapter of Exodus tonight. Again, we're dealing with the law of Moses. And we get in these chapters, from chapters 20 to 24, succinctly social laws, laws that deal with property rights, laws that deal with the Sabbath, and there's a variety of laws that Israel was given to deal with God. And we've already said, and we probably should reiterate, that people need laws because people are naturally disobedient and obstinate because of how we were born. I remember when I was in grade school and, you know, I was thinking about this story and then I was thinking, you know, uh, I'm in a very unique position as the pastor of this church. I really bear my heart to all you guys. I tell you probably every single thing that's happened to me, every story, every illustration. So you probably know me quite well, though I don't know all of you quite that well. But um, when I was in grade school and I went to a Catholic elementary school, uh, we weren't supposed to bring anything sharp to school. But I remember one evening I made, my father was at one time an aircraft engineer and he had aluminum piping and uh, it had a nice little hole in it and I thought, man, that'd make a great uh, dart gun, blow gun. And I was fascinated with that little aluminum pipe and so I, I took it and then I looked for something to put in it and remembering my mother was a nurse, I knew that she had a couple of 25-gauge hypodermic needles in the house. And so I uh, attached it to a little cork and put a little sponge at the end, and I tried it out at home, and I sailed it across the house uh, from one room to the other, and sure enough, it just sailed through the house and stuck into the wood. I thought, this is awesome. <laughs> and it was just such a nifty thing. You know, I'd never seen one in any toy store, and... I thought I was on to something. And I took it to school the next day. But I, I had no intention to abuse personal rights of anybody. I didn't want to infringe on them. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I just wanted to show my friends. And so I remember taking it to school, and I'd, I'd shoot it, and it'd go across the classroom, and it'd stick into something. It was before the, the teacher came to the classroom. It'd stick in her desk, and I'd pull it out and hide it. And again, I had no intention to, to harm anyone, but there was this one gal who just pushed my buttons to no end. And right around lunchtime, I got so fed up with her that I launched a missile <laughs> and aimed right for uh, um, a soft spot. <laughs> sure enough, I made a bullseye, and I got kicked out of school for it. I got in big trouble. Aren't you glad I wasn't your son? So, you know, you look at your children, you think, oh, man, they're really in bad shape. You say, oh, yeah, but Skip, oh, man, look at God took his life, and so there's hope. But those laws were in place so that people could be protected. And the laws were enforced in my school. Believe me, were they enforced. And in my home were they enforced. There was corporal punishment. And I felt it. And it was there out of love to protect the innocent victim, of which I was not. 
I needed to be punished. And you know, I could have stood before my dad and my mom and I said, now you know, as a prisoner I have certain rights. They would have said, you lost your rights when you launched that little hypodermic needle, buddy. In our home, I have laws. My wife and I set up um, parameters for our son. We do it because we love him. 8.30 at night, that's the time he needs to have his teeth brushed, pajamas on, and be put in bed. He didn't like all those laws. He didn't like that one especially. He's a late night person. And he likes to stay up as late as he could, 10, 11 if he could. But we know that the next morning he's going to need his energy to get out of bed, eat breakfast, go to school, and make it through the whole day with his mind focused upon the subjects that will be presented. So out of love we enforce that law. That's why we give it to him. We want him to have enough energy and have the mental acumen to keep track of what's going on the next morning. My son has a dog. He wanted a dog so badly. We said, fine, you can have a dog, but guess who cleans up its messes? You. Okay, I promise. I love a dog. I'll do anything. Well, if you ever have gone through this, you know that their tune changes after about the third mess they have to clean up. Now, as hard as we can, we enforce that. Nathan, it's Monday. It's your turn to go outside. It's cold, but you've got to do your chore. I could do it for him, and I could do a better job than he could, and I could do it a lot quicker than he could, and it wouldn't really bother me as much as it bugs him. But if we don't have him do it, he will be very irresponsible. So the law is put in place out of love to make him responsible. Though he is resistant sometimes to these laws, they're put in place out of love. God gave the children of Israel laws because he loved them, and he loved the people who, in that social context, would in certain cases be victims. And the children of Israel, you remember, already one time said, whatever the Lord tells you, Moses, we'll do it. You name it. But we just don't want to be the ones to talk to God. So Moses, you go talk to God. We'll hang out in the camp. You come back and you give us the message. In chapter 23, you shall not circulate a false report. The first several verses talk about social love, and then we talk about the Sabbath, beginning in verses 10, and then the feasts that the children of Israel are to keep before the Lord. I, I want to draw your attention to another fact that I've just recently discovered in the Old Testament. God gave a whole bunch of these regulations. I mean, lots of them. Some of you have tried to wade through them. You said, it's too much to read. I can't hang it. Hang with it. Can't handle it. Why did God give all these laws? God is laying down social justice for these people. But later on, in the myriad of commandments, and by the way, Rabbi Shammai in the third century of our era uh, noted that there were 365 prohibitions in the law and 248 positive commandments. And then, however, if you go from this point on and look through the rest of the Old Testament, you come, come to Psalm 15, and it seems that there are 11 principal commandments that sort of sum up the laws of the Old Testament. And then again you go to Isaiah 33 and they're reduced to six. And uh, then you get to the book of um, Micah and you come to three. It seems to be funneling into sort of general umbrellas of truth. In fact it says in that section 
He hath shown thee, O man, what, the, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Here's God's requirements that could be summed up in that. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Then we get to the book of Habakkuk. And if it's all summed up in one general commandment, the just shall live by faith. And we see the old covenant sort of waxing old until we get to the new covenant, the New Testament, where all of the law is fulfilled in the one word, love. You love God with all your heart. You love your neighbor as yourself. And again, the just shall walk by faith. In chapter 23, verse 1, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. There were seven things the Bible says God hates. One of them is a false witness. Somebody who uses their mouth wrongly and spreads an evil report, slanders another person, we're told in the book of Proverbs. So you shall not circulate a false report. Don't sin with your mouth. Every man, James said, should be slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to listen. Somebody once said, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. You would think by looking at some that they have two mouths and one ear. They're quick to talk and slow to listen. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Resist the mob mentality. We have what we call the herd instinct. Crowds do something to us. It's easy to follow the crowd. It's harder to be against the crowd. And sometimes in the fervor of a multitude, we get involved in their cause without even thinking through it. The same people, many of them, who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a few days later said, crucify him. And the crowd swelled. The multitude chanted it, crucify him, crucify him. And if this scripture were followed strictly, there'd be no gangs. There'd be no uh, kind of the negative marches that often takes, take place by crowds and uh, in pushing for um, ungodly rights and so forth, rioting. You shall not show par partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Uh, by the way, verse 2 reminded me as I was reading it this week just how powerful peer pressure is. The crowd. And the crowd becomes significant as a child launches out through life. What do my friends think? What will they say at school? You know, it's funny when the whole punk rock thing started being real popular in the United States and, you know, people started wearing green hair and, and uh, just seeing how weird they could look on purpose. You know, I'd look at them and say, okay, I, you, it, it worked. I notice you. You've achieved your goal. You are noticeable. Uh, often I'd say, "No, why do you do that? And they'd say, well, we're rebelling. Now, I, I was into rebelling for a long time. I still am for the right reasons. But, you know, a lot of it was, well, we don't want to look like anybody else. Yet when they're all together, you can't tell who's who. 
They look just like their best friends. They all look alike. It's that herd instinct. Yet they're trying to be different. From who? You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. In other words, justice ought to be the same without any partiality, without any respect of persons, whether he's poor or rich. You shouldn't say, well, he's poor. Of course he went out and committed crimes. That's, he's a victim of his environment. Don't worry about it. Be easier on him. He was poor. No, you don't show partiality. The Romans used to depict justice as a woman who was tender, but who was blindfolded, in one hand had a sword, in the other hand had a pair of scales. Justice was executed, but fairly. It was weighed with the evidence. There was tenderness, but there was justice. She was blindfolded so that she wouldn't see the state of the person that stood in front of her, whether rich or poor. In fact, in the Persian courts, the judges were actually blindfolded before they went into the courtroom. So they couldn't look upon the countenance of the person. They would just hear the facts of the case. So without favoritism, that's how you're to judge. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger. For you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Have you noticed that human nature is such that we naturally are repellent against people that are different than we are? I have noticed it all over the world. We say, well, in America there's so much prejudice. I found it among every nation, every people group. We naturally get together with people who are most like us and we're repellent against people who are different from us. We don't understand their differences and oftentimes we don't seek to understand them. And because we don't seek to understand how they think, how they act, we can oppress them. God says, now, of all the people on the earth, you guys should be the most compassionate. You used to be slaves in Egypt. You were strangers in a strange land. So you ought to know how to have compassion. And then in verses 10 through 13, the law of the Sabbath, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat, in like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest. In other words, your equipment needs to hang out too. That the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now you're going to notice... In the Old Testament, there are many Sabbaths. By the way, the word Sabbath means to cease or to rest. In its original, it means the end, 
to bring it to the completion. The, uh, the idea is that the work during the week has ended. It was a word God used for creation. On the seventh day, he ceased from all of his work. And because that pattern was in God's creation, that pattern was carried all the way throughout Israel's history. They were to rest every week. Take one day and cruise. Put it in neutral. Relax, hang, chill. They also had a pattern of six years in one year, a Sabbath year, a septennial rest for the land to replenish the natural resources in the ground, to not overstimulate the ground. And that was God's welfare program. It was really an awesome program. Uh, if you're a farmer and you let everything grow during the uh, uh, seasons and you harvest it, you do that for six years. The seventh year, you were to have so tilled your land and taken care of it that you could gather in enough to support you and your family for the next year. So you just hung out for a year and everything that grew of itself in the fields, the poor in the community would glean for free in your land. That's how they were taken care of. Whatever grew of itself, you let it grow, you don't touch it, you let the poor come in and glean so that they were taken care of. So you had six in one pattern of days, six in one pattern of years, and then you also had the Jubilee year. After seven sets of septennial rests, 49 years, the 50th year was the year of the blowing of the shofar, and all of the land reverted back to the family of origin, slaves went free, and it was a year of jubilee. Now, we've already talked about the Sabbath, and we've seen that it was a covenant that God made with the children of Israel that is not meant to be kept by New Testament Christians. The early church did not feel compelled to meet every Saturday and keep the Sabbath day. They met on the first day of the week. Yet, there are groups of people today who say, you aren't New Testament Christians. You really aren't God's people because you don't keep the Sabbath. And they talk about how they keep the Sabbath. But what is interesting to me is that none of these groups keep the Sabbath year. They talk, we keep the Sabbath. Really? Do you keep the septennial rest? Do you keep the year of Jubilee? That is in the commandment of the Sabbath. Well, we don't do that because that's not for today. Oh, really? Who gave you the right to pick and choose? Better to follow a New Testament directive than to isolate something out of the Old Testament and call yourself a New Testament believer. And then verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. And God's going to spell out when those times are. Jesus kept all these, by the way. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread around the time of Passover. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I command you. At the time I appoint in the month of Abib, later on called Nisan, the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar. For in it you, shall, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. Now you remember what they did. They would take a Passover lamb. They would take all the leaven out of their house. They would eat nothing with leaven for seven days. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In that was the Feast of Passover. Originally, a lamb was killed. The blood was put where? Lentils in the doorposts. They went out of Egypt. They ate the Passover standing up with their tunic tucked in their belt, sandals on their feet, ready to split when God told them to go. Later on, a lamb was killed and sprinkled on the altar in the tabernacle and in the temple. And uh, instead of standing up, they reclined. They actually laid on their side and had a leisurely meal as they recounted in their minds and with the family what God had done in the past. 
between 10 and 20 people were the minimum that would eat a Passover lamb because you kill one lamb, that's a lot of meat. And uh, a, a barbecue lamb would be usually enough to feed 10 to 20 people. So the minimum, according to the Jewish law, was Passover had to be served, the meal to 10 people. And so that's the first feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they were to keep. But notice in verse 17 that none of you shall appear before me empty. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, you may want to just make a little note in the margin of your Bible or in your notes. What this means is that they were to bring some kind of an offering. It's expounded upon in that text. Some kind of offering in expression to God, thanking Him for what He has done for them throughout that last year. It's the first month of the year, Passover. The redemption is marked at the beginning of their calendar year. They bring some kind of an offering depending on how God blessed them financially. And God says, none of you should come before me empty. And then verse 16, the feast of the harvest, known in the New Testament as Pentecost, Shavuot, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. And then the third one is the feast of ingathering, known as the feast of tabernacles later on, which is at the end of the year. That is the end of the agricultural year. When you have gathered in the fruits of your labors from the field. Pentecost means 50 days, 50 days from the taking of the first sheaf of the barley harvest. It was also called the Feast of Weeks. You count several weeks after that, and on the 50th day after the sheaf was waved, the first of the barley harvest, that was the Feast of Pentecost. And then finally, the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, Tabernacles in the month of Tisri. Do you remember... The feast that Jesus kept and the time in which it was spoken of in the New Testament, the Feast of Tabernacles, when they had gathered in Jerusalem and Jesus stood up in the temple and He said, If any man thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Remember that? And uh, Last Communion, we unfolded that. How many were here Last Communion? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, let me just... Oh, I don't need to go through it. It's, it's, uh, it's there for you. Okay, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord. Now, this is how the Jews interpreted this. They said, the rabbi said, every Jew, every at least head of the household that lived 15 miles around Jerusalem and less had to be there. It was a law. It was a requirement. To get ready for these feasts, the roads were paved. paved um, holes were filled up. Bridges were repaired. Things were made clean. Shops got ready, and they would paint the tombs of all the people who had graves along the side of the road or in Jerusalem so that people coming to Jerusalem would not step or touch a grave lest they become defiled. And the graves were bright white during these festivals. And it was during one of the festivals that Jesus made mention as He, along with many other pilgrims, came to Jerusalem. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like these whitewashed tombs. You look pretty and painted on the outside, but inside you are full of death and corruption. It provided quite an analogy as the people were getting ready for the feast and doing all these externals, but they weren't concerned about their own hearts. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor the fat of my sacrifice 
remain till morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And here's what we referred to last week. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now you know what he means by that? Exactly what it says. Exactly that. In Canaan, part of the fertility rites, the pagan worship, was to do this, was to boil a fetal goat or a young born goat in the milk of its mother. And it would seethe in that. And it was part of a pagan custom. And that seems to be what God is getting at. The rabbis throughout the years in the oral law, in the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Midrash, the Gemara, had all of these interpretations. Well, what exactly does God mean? And here's the interpretation throughout the generations, and this is where they stand today. They say, if you eat meat and you eat a dairy product, if both of those sit in your stomach, they will churn and seethe, and you will disobey this command because you've eaten meat and milk together. And so an Israeli breakfast consists of uh, uh, kefilte fish and uh, raw vegetables and some crackers and coffee. In fact, most Americans, when they go on a tour to Israel, go, this is it? I'd like an omelet. A ham and cheese omelet. And it, it, you don't do that in Israel. Because swine is unkosher and meat and cheese together, oh, it's an abomination. And if dairy is served at lunch, it will not be served with meat. If meat is served, it will not be served with dairy. And two sets of dishes are kept because that's a kosher kitchen. You separate the meat from the dairy. Lest you boil the young goat in its mother's milk. And you say, what does that have to do with the scripture? Absolutely nothing. It's one of those misinterpretations that has carried throughout the centuries because of the oral laws, the misinterpretations of the rabbis. Jesus, in Matthew 23, it really is one of my favorite chapters because he just sort of puts a stop sign in the midst of all this false religion. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, who strain out a gnat, and yet you swallow a camel. That's a joke. I'm sure people got a kick out of hearing that one. Straining out at a gnat, and yet at the same time swallowing a camel. It was a very picturesque chop against these characters. This, the, the, here's the chop. You would never eat meat unless it was thoroughly bled, and insects were an abomination. They couldn't thoroughly bleed a gnat, and sometimes they would talk or they would drink something, and a gnat would land on it, they'd drink it, and they'd you know, choke, and they'd try to filter out their wine and their fluids with gauze, lest a gnat be caught in their fluids. Jesus says, you strain out of a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You guys are so worried about non-issues. You are majoring on minors. And I think that that could be said of many Christians today. We major on such picky, little, crazy stuff. I wish I could show you some of my mail. Uh, just... You know, but picky things about certain people in the church or about certain things that are done or a certain song that is shared or Chet wore a hat this week and how ungodly that is. And, you know, you look at this stuff and, and I wish I could just let you read it. But it would embarrass the people who wrote it. Maybe we should, but no. 
straining at gnats, swallowing camels. And here's a good example of a scripture that was spoken against a pagan fertility rite that came to mean nothing in which it was intended from the beginning. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice and do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Adesites, and I will cut them off. Nor shall you bow down to their gods and serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Now, again, you might want to write a note so we don't have to read it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 10 verses speak about the one who led them through the wilderness and led them into the land and was the spiritual rock and was the destroyer of the complainers was none other than Jesus Christ. And this seems to be a prophetic description of the, not an, the angel of the Lord. We call it a Christophany, a theophany, the appearance of God in the flesh, a pre and uh, New Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. You remember in Joshua chapter 5, as Joshua stands before Jericho, and he's ready with the battle plan. It says he looked up and he saw a man standing there with a drawn sword. And so Joshua, being a military man, is ready to fight. He goes, are you for us or for our adversaries? The man said, no. So, no. You just ruined my question. Are you for us or our adversaries? No, but as the commander of the Lord's army I have come. Joshua said, are you on our side or their side? And it's as if this personage was saying, that's not important. Are you on my side? I'm in charge, Joshua, not you. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And then Joshua said, what does my Lord want me to do? And the, the, that this person said, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground, just like the burning bush told Moses. And he worshipped. And even as it was prophesied here, it seems that Jesus Christ shows up in the Old Testament. At least that's what many scholars, and I'd be inclined to agree with them since they're scholars and they've researched it and I haven't. I would tend to agree with them. My name is in him, it says. An interesting kind of a description back in verse 21. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless you or bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you and cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hiv uh, and the Hivite the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before. You're going to notice there's lots of these ites that live in the land. And these are people groups who live in walled city-states all around the present-day uh, country of what we call Israel, the land of Canaan. Next couple verses fascinate me. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. And the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. 
And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. The land of Canaan that God promised them, which will take a long time for them to really get to because of their disobedience. The land of Canaan is a gift. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. Now, if you don't believe me, just follow along in the next several chapters and you see that for 40 years they did nothing but gripe. They griped, they griped, they griped, they yelled at God, yet God gave them a land of Canaan. They didn't deserve it. It was a gift of God's grace. And now that's what salvation is like. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. God saved you, not because you deserved it. God wasn't looking over the world and all of a sudden in the midst of humanity, there you were. You were so irresistible. He was drawn to you magnetically and he thought, oh, now there's a perfect person, an obedient person. I've got to save that person. No, God saved you by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. None of you can say you deserve what God has done for you. None of you could dare say that. Now, because it's a free gift, why do some of you still act like you're trying to earn it or deserve it? When will you rest? What if somebody gave you a Christmas gift, and as soon as they gave you that gift, you opened it up, oh, it's wonderful. You took your checkbook out to write them a check for it. Do you think that would insult them? Well, it would insult me if I gave a gift to somebody. If I gave a gift to my son and my son said, well, Dad, don't worry, I'll work this off. I'd say, relax, it's a gift. Receive it as a gift freely. It was given freely. Receive what God has done for you. Cooperate with God, but receive that gift freely. It's a gift that God wants to give some of you tonight. Some of you are thinking, man, my heart is so broken. I'm so empty. I feel so far from God. What do I have to do to feel good? You have to admit that you're a sinner and receive the gift of salvation. Jesus already did it all. That's the first step. And that's like the land of Canaan. And then you notice in verse 29 and 30 that Canaan was taken as a process. It says, I'm not going to give it to you all at once. This new land, this awesome place, I don't want the beasts of the field to become so numerous that you're wiped out. Now, I'm slowing down on this that you might be encouraged. Some of you get so discouraged because you're not a spiritual giant after you've been saved two months. I can't believe it. I don't have an evangelistic ministry like Billy Graham. I've been saved a year already. He never called me up and asked him to take his crusades. Oh, I'm a failure. No, you grow little by little. God wanted them to depend daily upon him. There's no instant spiritual growth. It's not a light switch. Some people think it's a light switch. Well, all you have to do is claim every promise and bind every demon and it'll be just, you'll be perfect. No, that's a pipe dream. Spiritual maturity is a process. It doesn't come all at once. Little by little, God said, I'll give it to you. And then God gave to them boundaries. I set the bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. I think you ought to see exactly what he means. Turn to the book of Joshua. Turn to the right. Keep going. Pass all these books till you get to the book of Joshua. First chapter. 
Look at verse 3. Every place, notice, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. I'm giving it to you. You've got to walk on it. You've got to appropriate it. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that is way down in Egypt, the river of Egypt, all the way east to that modern-day Iraq where Saddam Hussein lives. All the land of the Hittites to the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean, toward the going down of the sun out west, shall be your territory. Roughly 300,000 square miles were given to them. There's your borders. God mapped it out. I'll draw it out for you. Here, I'm giving you 300,000 square miles. But every place that the sole of your foot treads, that's what you're going to have. Though God gave them 300,000 square miles, they only took 30,000 square miles at the pinnacle of their history under David and Solomon. That's the most they ever took. Now, follow this. God gave them a whole bunch. They lived in a tenth of what God gave them. I wonder if that doesn't describe some of us. The land of Canaan is a lot like the spiritual journey in life. I wonder if God doesn't give every blessing in heavenly places, as He says He does, but a lot of times we just live little meager Christian lives without God's power, God's provision. No, Lord, I like this little tent. In fact, can I have a little less? I just like it. It's comfortable here. There's a story about John Wendell. He was called America's most miserly millionaire. Died in 1915 in New York City. John Wendell was so tight with money that he decided to be a bachelor his whole life and never marry a woman so it wouldn't have to ever be divided, the cash. And miraculously, he persuaded all five of his sisters to not get married. When one of them died in 1931, one of these sisters, her estate was worth $100 million. Big buckaroos. Though her estate was worth $100 million, she had no electricity in her home. She had no telephone. She owned no car. She had one dress that she wore for 25 years. Imagine having a hundred million bucks and enjoying pennies. Ephesians says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But we've got to appropriate them. We've got to set our foot on the land and try out that promise and with faith move into that arena and that area and step out by the Spirit of God and watch God work. It's a great spiritual analogy here that God gives us a lot, but... As the children of Israel, maybe we don't appropriate it. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. You, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, that's the sons of Aaron, Seventy of the elders of Israel, remember where they come from? Back in chapter 18 when Jethro said, Moses, I'm not impressed, you're hardworking, but you need 70 guys to help you out. You're busy as a bee and you need help. And so 70 elders came out of that meeting. And so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. 
Now, chapter 24 is sort of a hinge. It's a turning point in, this, uh, in the whole history of the nation. It's actually one of the peaks of the book of Exodus because Israel is now becoming a covenant people. God has given them a covenant, the law of Moses. Chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23 are called the book of the covenant in this chapter. And Moses says, now this is what God just told me to tell you guys. Here it is. That's the covenant. They're going to ratify the covenant by a sacrifice, setting up pillars and going through a little ritual, having a meal. And that makes them a covenant people. They enter into a new connection with God called a theocracy. Now we don't know what a theocracy is today practically because we haven't seen one on earth since this era. We have a democracy of the people, by the people, for the people. At least that's what they say. But man has proven that he is incapable of governing himself. Whether it's a uh, dictatorship, sovereign rulership of a king, or a democracy. After a period of time, every form of human government breaks down and deteriorates. But here's a theocracy. God is the boss. He calls the shots. He speaks through a mediator, Moses, and he carries out his work. He says, now I'm going to promise to take care of you, move out your enemies and provide for you, but I'm in charge. This is the covenant they're entering into. And you'll see now a comparison between the old covenant, that's what this is, and the new covenant. The old covenant, though it seems awesome, it's a theocracy, at the same time it was restrictive. You see, if I woke up in the middle of the night in my tent and I said, you know, I'm really bothered. I'm going to go into that tabernacle over there where God's hanging out with that pillar, that fiery pillar and that cloud. I'm going to go talk to him personally. If I walked into the holy place, I would just keel over dead. God would judge me for presumptively coming into his presence without the proper ordinances. And that's how they live for a period of years. Okay, let's get into it. He calls these people to come up and worship, and so here Moses tells them everything that God just told him, and again, the people, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Now, this is the second time they said this. They never did what they said. They said they do it all. They didn't do most of it. They proved throughout their history that they could not, in their own strength, keep all the laws of God. As long as the covenant of the law existed, it simply showed that man was a failure. Paul said, when I look at the law, I see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And he cried out, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? They never were able to keep it, but they said they would. Now, I think that it's noble to say that you want to do something like this. I do. I think it probably revealed a good heart, but they're going to see that they have not the capacity to carry it out. Now, there's an important lesson in this for all of us. The flesh can never please God. How many times have you said, I'm going to do this. I'm never going to fail in that area again. I've quit making those vows. I just figure, as the scripture says, God knows my frame that I am but dust. You don't expect much out of dust. So I just say, oh Lord, by your grace, keep me. 
I meet people every now and then who say, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I may not be perfect, but I keep the Ten Commandments. Under my breath, I want to say, you liar. What about thou shalt not covet? I mean, what they mean is, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I never commit adultery. Well, remember, Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. If you lust after somebody, you're an adulterer. That the law begins in the heart. But forget all of that for just a moment. What about that commandment, thou shalt not covet? That's something inward. That goes with the will and the heart. You may have never murdered, but if you ever looked and coveted something that somebody else has, you've broken the law. You don't live by the Ten Commandments. Worse yet, every now and then I meet a person who says, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. I say, either you've never read it, you don't understand it, or you're a blatant liar. Because anybody who's read it couldn't say that they live always by that Sermon on the Mount. It's such a high standard. Be perfect, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. You go, okay, I blew that. What's plan B? And the purpose is that you see your failure. You cast yourself upon God's solution. He saves you, washes you, fills you with His Spirit. The law is fulfilled. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself. The law is fulfilled in Christ. And then there's a progression of sanctification. God takes us and works His will in us little by little over a period of time in the Christian life. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, which represent what? The twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in basins. Half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He took the book of the covenant, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it. He was sort of previewing to these people what they needed. They weren't going to keep the law. They needed blood atonement. And now you will see built into their approach to God a blood sacrifice system. Blood will be shed. An innocent animal will die. Blood will be shed for the sins of the people sprinkled on them, sprinkled in the tabernacle. And that's how sins will be atoned for until Christ comes. Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, all things are purged with blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Then Moses went up, and also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in clarity, but the nobles of the children of Israel on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come to me in the mountain and be there. I like that. I've got an appointment with you, Mo. Be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua. Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. You see what he's doing here? Remember back in Exodus 18? Jethro said, You can't do this, Moses. This is going to wear you out. Get 70 guys who can 
See these people every day, counsel them, work with them, settle their disputes. If it's too tough for them, they'll come to you. Well, he's saying, I'm going to be up hanging out with God for 40 days and 40 nights. These two men will take my position for all of the hard judicial matters. I can't adjudicate between them. I'm going to be with the Lord. And so these two were given the duty. Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went to the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now before you close your book, your Bible. Look back to verse 10 where it says, They saw the God of Israel under his feet. It was paved work as a sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And then uh, uh, also verse 11, So they saw God and they ate and they drank. Now we're confused at that because in John chapter 1 verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And yet it says here, they saw God. All of the Jewish writings, all of the ancient commentaries, all of the modern commentaries say probably what this was is some kind of a manifestation of God. They had some kind of a vision that they were all taken into, maybe a trance, and they saw this vision, this manifestation of God, not the very glory of God. Uh, even uh, God said, Moses, no man can look upon me and live. So they saw some kind of vision, manifestation of God. Perhaps they saw a theophany. And perhaps they got a sort of a vision like uh, uh, Ezekiel God or John God in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 1 where this glorious image of Jesus Christ was seen. Nevertheless, it says they saw God and God called them up to himself. I want to close with an important thought process. Moses was never satisfied in his present relationship with God. There was this holy restlessness, I would say, that drove him to yearn for more. Now think about it. Here's a guy who has seen more miracles, more supernatural stuff than every one of us in this room put together and even what we've imagined. He had seen it. He saw a Red Sea open up. He walked on dry ground that was once wet. He saw God smite the Egyptians. He saw that pillar of fire and that cloud. And on and on. He saw water come out of a rock. Manna fall from the sky. But it wasn't enough. He wanted something more. He craved more. In fact, he said, Oh God, show me your glory. Remember that later on? Oh God, he prayed, show me your glory. And that's when God said, Moses, no man can look upon me and continue to live in his present state. I'm going to submit something to you that I believe very strongly. Even as Moses wanted more and wasn't satisfied, I would say that's the purpose of worship. 
The purpose of worship is not to make us satisfied. In fact, have you ever been totally satisfied with any form of worship, any worship service you've ever been in? I never have. I've never met one Christian who has. I've never met one Christian who said, that was so awesome tonight. Or my private time of worship was so amazing. I'm now satisfied. I don't need any more. I'm totally fulfilled. No, it's usually, I want more. I want to experience more. Moses was not satisfied until he could see the face of God. And I submit to you, you will never be totally satisfied until you see your Savior face to face. And I want you to get to think of worship that way. It's not something to satisfy you, but to create a more intense thirst for that meeting that you will have in eternity with Him. It was never meant to make you, oh, I'm totally satisfied. David said, I will be satisfied when I awaken thy likeness. When I worship as rewarding and as fulfilling as it is in a certain context, all it makes me yearn for is to be in His presence forever, face to face. Here's an example. When I travel, and I'm going to be traveling here after next Sunday, I'm going to be going to India. And that's on the other side of the globe. And uh, when I travel, I like to take at least one, if not a couple, pictures of, of my family. I have some in my drawer at home, and I tuck them in my Bible, and I take them with me. People are going to say, oh, show me your family. And I have a picture, but also for me, a hotel room at night or wherever we stay over there. I'm going to pull that out and look at it. It's a reminder of them. I look at them. I see their features. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Those pictures don't satisfy me. I don't go, oh, I'm just going to hug this picture, and I feel better now. I feel just so satisfied. All they make me do is yearn longer or more intensely to see them face to face. I have simply an uh, image of them. I don't have them. And as great as it is, it just whets my appetite to come home and see them. The longer I'm away, the longer I look at those photographs, the more I yearn to be in their presence. That photograph can't kiss me back. That photograph can't put its arms around me and hug me. I have in this book an accurate photograph, all that I need to know about God right now. And as more I learn about it and the more I worship the Lord, it only whets my appetite to be in His presence. It wants me to be ready to meet Him. It wants me to be, gets me to be prepared because Jesus could come back at any moment. And I want to be ready to meet Him. So Jesus said, be sober, watch. For in that day when you think not, your Lord will come. Some of you just can't wait till that day. Others of you are a little bit shaky about it. Well, man, oof, I hope he doesn't come too soon. I don't think my heart's right. I don't think I'm ready to meet God. Well, maybe God has allowed you to come tonight to be reminded of the eternal perspective to get right with him. To surrender your heart to Him. To get a little glimpse of Him right here and now. To have Him forgive you of your sins. To give you assurance of salvation. So that you're ready. And that you yearn for His presence. Let's pray. Our Lord. We think of that day in the future where John said, 
And we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is the hope of every believer. Every one of us who knows you tonight is looking forward to seeing your face. Lord, that scares and intimidates others. And so, Father, I pray that you would search hearts and minds at this very moment. And those people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord tonight, who have restless hearts, would come to be refreshed at your springs, your streams this evening, Lord.